and the lady who was at the farm uh, a year or two earlier who I had stayed in contact with came up to me and I said, did you get the Durham? She said, yes, we did. And she said, it was the best Durham we've ever got. I thought, wow, this is great. I finally raised food that people want. You know, and it's not a commodity, it's actually food. And I was always uncertain whether we were going to make the transition on the entire farm. I didn't know if we were going to be in, we were going to be out. I wanted to do it. I didn't know if it would work economically. I didn't know if my wife and I could do it. I didn't know if we had the skill set to do it. But I'm going to tell you, that statement by Ann Sinclair, that day when I walked into that meeting, they had me. And we converted the whole farm. By uh, 1990, we were completely uh, organically certified and we moved on from there. Uh, and we've done it and it's worked for us. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock under the organic seal. You just heard from U.S. Montana Senator John Tester. He's an organic farmer himself and the author of Grounded, a Senator's Lessons on Winning Back Rural America. Senator Tester spoke with us for a recent virtual symposium, which is still available to watch at realorganic2022.org. We are happy today to share the full interview with you, so let's listen in to Dave Chapman's conversation with Senator John Tester. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast, and I'm very pleased today to be talking with Senator John Tester. John, uh, one of these days I'm going to get to your ranch in Montana, but in the meantime, here we are in D.C. Yep, you're certainly certainly welcome to come out, and uh, this is about 180 degrees off of uh, where we farm in north central Montana. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, you know, I, I tell folks, why, why, why do you work out here when you've got, you know, uh, nearest neighbors a mile away and and you've got the ability to walk outside and hear the birds singing and breathe the good air and all that stuff. And the fact of the matter is, is uh, I can change certain things 12 miles west of Big Sandy, Montana, but, uh, but you can have a lot more impact back here in the United States Senate. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to work on. Um, just briefly, how'd you get into organic? I, I, I've heard, but let's share with people, what was your journey to become an organic farmer in Montana? So um, I'll tell you, and it's a, we took the farm over from my parents in 1978, spring of 78. Um, they took it over from uh, my grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side uh, in the, from 1943. So it's been in the family since it was patented. Um, when my folks farmed it, my dad never fertilized. He didn't believe in it. He thought it was just a waste of money. And he didn't like spray. He'd, he'd tell me every time when he went out and sprayed in the spring that, you know, this stuff will kill you. You know, be very careful because it's bad for you. So when I took over the farm in 78, I had that as foundational principles of agriculture, so to speak, right, wrong, or indifferent. And that's how we started farming. Well, um, my wife, who's also a farm girl, we uh, we put on the seed uh, uh, early on a coating called Vitavax. 
And when we filled the drills, um, uh, it was with a shovel and a slide, and I'd be shoveling the weed in, she'd be down at the, the drill, and, and that, that dust had come off that Vitavax. And her sinuses would just get, her sinuses would just burn up. I mean, they'd just be really, really bad. And that was one thing. So we could use Vitavax because uh, it wasn't worth it, okay? And everything seemed to work out okay. And, and then every time I sprayed in the spring, uh, when we sprayed for weeds using 2,4-D ester or amine, um, it would be, I'd be sick for a week. Uh, and it was just, I mean, you just plan on it. I mean, you spray for three or four days. Uh, you ate that stuff the whole time. It was an open air. Uh, Willie's Jeep that we sprayed with, with yellow devil booms on it. And uh, so you, you ate it. If the wind was blowing the wrong direction, you'd, you'd get covered with it. And um, and I always said after I sprayed for a while, I could pee on a weed and kill it because I'd absorbed that much of that chemical. And I, like I said, I got flu. Well, then there was a lady that worked for Eden Foods um, that showed up. Um, she was a, an acquaintance of, of Bob Quinn who I think you've had on your podcast. And um, she came out, and I, I met her, and she said, look, um, uh, and I told her what was going on, and she said, look, you, you transition some ground, and uh, the company I work for will buy the Durham. Now, we had never raised Durham before, but what the heck. We were young and youthful and wanted to do it, and she said, you got to do a little soil building, and she said, it's not that much different what you're doing now. You just got to put in some cover crops and uh, pay attention to what's going on for your weeds and, you know, farm accordingly. You, may have, you might have to get some narrower space drills. Uh, you might have to plant a little later in the spring. But she said, you can do this if you want to do it. Well, I didn't like the didn't like the spray, didn't like the weeds. We didn't fertilize. And so we, we did the transition and... Uh, and uh, we planted Durham, never planted it before. We got the Durham. Of course, the border strips you have to sell conventionally. This is a long story, but we'll get to it conventionally. And by the way, the price for that Durham, I believe, was darn near double what the, what the conventional price was. So it, there was some motivation there economically, too. And we'd, we'd uh, you know, we'd, during the transition time, we'd planted some, uh, they call them black belugas now. They were, uh, they were uh, Indian head lentils is what we called them back then. Um, and we plowed them under and, and things were going well. And then we harvested that durum. And this is the interesting thing. I took the border strips to the local elevator and we sold it in a conventional market because that's what you do the outside 25 feet. And uh, the inside, we, I took and I binned it, okay? Well, when I hauled it off and settled the settlement seed up for the, you know, for the, for the, I don't know what it was, 100 bushel, 150 bushel on the, on the, on the, on the border for the fields we had, I walked in and, and the, the grain merchant said, well, you know, uh, it's got too much of this and too little of that. And for every one of those, they docked a little here and docked a little there. And when I walked out, that Durham that was supposed to sell for three fifty, I ended up netting about three ten a bushel for it, and he told me everything that was wrong with it, everything that was wrong with it. So when I walked out of the elevator, I, you know, I kind of felt bad, quite frankly, that I'd raised such crappy Durham, you know, but they were going to buy it for as little as they had they could, and and then we loaded up the stuff that was in the middle of the field because that was the organic production, and we loaded on a semi. And they took it off and they made pasta out of it. And about a month later, I was involved with a certification group called OCIA. And I went to their annual meeting. It was, in, it was outside of Philly. 
And the lady who was at the farm uh, a year or two earlier, who I'd stayed in contact with, came up to me and I said, did you get the Durham? She said, yes, we did. And she said, it was the best Durham we've ever got. I thought, wow, this is great. I finally raised food that people want. You know, and it's not a commodity, it's actually food. And I was always uncertain whether we were gonna make the transition on the entire farm. I didn't know if we were gonna be in, we were gonna be out, I wanted to do it. I didn't know if it would work economically. I didn't know if my wife and I could do it. I didn't know if we had the skill set to do it. But I'm gonna tell you, that statement by Ann Sinclair, that day when I walked into that meeting, they had me. And we converted the whole farm. By uh, 1990, we were completely uh, organically certified and we moved on from there. Uh, and we've done it and it's worked for us. Um, I can tell you we are one of the smaller farms in eastern Montana. We farm about 1,800 acres. And if you're from Vermont, you say, holy mackerel, that's a ton of land and it is. Uh, about a couple hundred acres of it's in grass and the rest of it's in farmland. And it's supported two families almost its entire life. And it continues to do. And, and one of the reasons it does is because uh, we made that transition. Otherwise, I think we'd have gotten ate up by the big guys and we'd have been gone. Yeah. yeah. And so that's the story. That's how we got there. And that's, that's, that's why we're staying. Yeah, thank you. You're, you not only are the only organic farmer in the Senate, you're the only farmer in the Senate. That's correct. It's Actively engaged. That's correct. Amazing. We still that, do the work. That keeps me sane. And it's amazing that that's the case that there's only one because, yeah. of course, when the Senate started, probably the majority were farmers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's true. And and, um, and look, it's the nature of the beast. We've, uh, we've consolidated in agriculture both from a production side and a market side. I don't think it's healthy. The, one of the other big advantages that I found in organics is if I didn't want to sell it to one company, there were other companies out there. Look, uh, when we made the conversion, there were three grain elevator companies in Big Sandy, Montana. There are none now. They're all gone. Uh, the consolidation has continued to happen. Um, I would bet you, and there's been consolidation in organics too, and I don't think that's necessarily healthy, but I would bet you there's easily, I could go into my database and find 10 companies to sell grain to that fast. Same thing with pulse crops. Same, same thing with oil seeds. I mean, the market is pretty vibrant. And, and if you're going to have capitalism, you got to have competition. And uh, I think there still is competition in organics. I think we need to be aware of it because I think there are some big companies that like to do the same thing they do to conventional grain. And, and that's just control the marketplace and give the farmer a few peanuts while uh, the rest of us, uh, while, they, while they're making big bucks. Yeah. So we, we've in Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine and New York, we're going through the situation with our dairy farmers where they're even taking away the peanuts. Yeah. Um, you know, the big Denone Horizon dump announced 89 farms and there really isn't a choice. So uh, they're probably, most of them are gonna go bankrupt in a year. And you know, before this happened, a lot of people in Vermont said, I know there are problems in the, in the USDA, but not in Vermont. And I'm sure in Montana, it's like, not in Montana. We have a good program. And I said, yeah, but we're part of a bigger system. We are. And what, how's it working for the dairy farmers? Yeah. So it's, first of all, my heart goes out to those folks. I mean, it's tough. Those, those places have probably been in their families longer than mine has in ours. And so you get an attachment to that land that's it's tough to get through things like that. 
And the problem with milk is it's it unless you powder it, it won't store. I mean, you got to use it or lose it. And um, and so by the time you, you would be able to get a milk cooperative set up, I mean, you just don't have the kind of money in the bank that would allow you to do that. Uh, I wish there was something we could do here to help them. I would. I'll just tell you that. Um, I, I'm still somebody, and you look at me, you can tell me I drink a lot of milk. I love cow's milk. Uh, I like goat's milk too, by the way. It's all really good. And uh, I've uh, for those that drink the other stuff made out of plants, that's cool too. Uh, good on you. But I'm telling you, dairy farmers are the hardest workers in the world, man. They may, they work for every penny they get. And uh, I just, it's, I just, I just wish there was something we could do. I mean, we've seen a lot of the small convention dairies go out of business 25, 30 years ago, and it breaks my heart to think that the organic ones are heading down that same road. Yeah, well, and for the same reason, I think. Yeah. I mean, yes, the plant milks are coming in, but really, it's the CAFOs that are really coming yeah. in. Yeah. And and that that scale of production, and it is more efficient because. Yeah. They're sure. not pasturing the animals. Right. They just got them parked at McDonald's and bring the food in. So the challenge that we all have is most people don't even know what a CAFO is. They don't know what a confined animal feeding operation is. But if you were ever there and you ever saw it, you would know that it's not natural. It's not organic. It's not the way you do things. you got cows in manure up to their knees, and it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work. It's not sustainable. And quite frankly, I don't know how organic people can do CAFOs. I don't know how they can do them because your chance for disease in a CAFO operation is so much greater than if they're out on green grass. And so I, um, I don't know how they do it. I just don't know how they do it. And, uh, and I think that's really unfortunate because cows, truthfully, cows aren't made on, and, and look, uh, I've, I've had dry lot feedlots on our place. We've, we fed 30, 40 head of cattle, and that's not a CAFO, but it's animals in a confined area. And, um, you know, we, we raise good beef, but, and sometimes that's what you do. And, and that was, it was, you know, back in the day when I had cows, since I've had this job, I haven't. But, but the truth is, is when you have large numbers of cattle and small, on small pens, your chances for disease goes through the roof. And, uh, I quite frankly don't know how they can do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know how they can get certified anyway because they're supposed to be on pasture. That's right. That's, that's correct. And by the way, that's that's really what you're paying the premium for. And uh, and I, I will tell you that we, uh, unless we have to, we don't buy conventional milk. It's, it's one of the foods that we buy almost exclusively organic uh, because I think it's that much better. Yeah, yeah. Well, the CAFOs and, of course, the, the chicken CAFOs are, are worse and, yeah. and a bigger percentage of the organic sales. And Miles McAvoy, the former head of the NOP, told me that if the animal welfare was passed, which he was trying hard to get done, right. he said that would lead to the decertification of over 70% yep. of the certified organic eggs in America. I was like, oh, my God. You know what? That's not so bad. I mean, it's, it's, oh my God, it's terrible. But the truth is, if you're going to have organics, it has to stand for something. You can't stand for conventional. Uh, I, was, I was affiliated with OCIA for a while. I was on their executive board and their board of directors. And I still remember the speech I gave before the election. It was, you know, the standards that we live by are the foundation for what we do. And if you don't have good enforced standards, uh, 
you're going to lose the organic seal. And if you lose that organic seal and you lose the trust of the public, you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble out there. So I would, I would much rather have folks say, this is the rules. This is what you got to play by. If you're a producer or a processor, this is what you need to do. If you can't do that, don't jump into the organic marketplace. Don't do that. If you've, if you've got to put some, something in your eggs to make them look like your chickens have been on grass, then you're probably not organic. Okay? You're probably not organic. So let's move a different direction. The problem is back here, and it's not money that goes into people's pockets like me because that doesn't happen to my knowledge at all. But what you do have is you have people that hire lobbyists that come back here and tell you um, they take a, a grain of truth and make it into a mountain. Okay, And so Oftentimes, I don't think people do this intentionally back here, but they just don't know the whole story. And, and look, if you're involved in production agriculture, if you're an organic producer out there, you don't have time to run back here to Washington, D.C. and tell these folks and educate them on what needs to be happening. It's really up to us to do that. I try to do as much of that as I can here amongst my fellow senators. But then you also have, you know, you've got the big giant multinational businesses that are out here that they want it their way, man. That's a fact. They 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 don't. They got no time for John Tester. They don't, and and quite frankly, so they're going to do whatever they can do to make sure that marketplace, that they control eighty five percent of the meat in this country, they, they, or the world, I should say. They like that, because you control food, you control people, and and if you got competition, capitalism works. If you don't, it doesn't work. And so we've got to be very careful as policy producers, back, uh, policy makers back here, that that we understand. Agriculture, number one, because there's darn few of us that are just in basic agriculture. And then when it comes to things like dairy, it's different than me. I wasn't raised on a dairy farm. They got different challenges. You got to understand it. When you, when you get things like, um, you know, water resources and irrigation, another issue, okay? Organics, another issue. So there's plenty to learn. Yeah. You, when you spoke at the Organic Farmers Association, you mentioned hydroponics and organic, you said if your certifier was certifying hydroponic, you would find a different certifier. Yeah, it's I a did bold say statement. that. Strong, it's, it's a good statement. Yeah, yeah it was true. You, yeah. Uh, the unfortunate part is I didn't check and see if Montana USDA is certifying hydroponics. And I, I will tell you that I do think we have a problem called growth. We have a program called Growth Through Ag. It's, it's, it's taxpayer dollars that fund new businesses, and if I remember right, I, they did fund a hydroponics project with the growth through egg money, but I don't know if it was organic or not. I mean, look, hydroponics are fine. They're just not organic. Yeah. They aren't. That's right. And by the way, CAFOs aren't organic. They're not. I hate to tell you, if you're out there running a CAFO, sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I mean, look, if I use fertilizer and Sprayed weeds, I wouldn't be organic. I mean, that's what, what what's the difference here? What we because you feed them organic hay, that makes them organic, even though they're standing in knee-deep crap. I mean, look, that that it doesn't work that way. So I agree with you, that's not really organic, but the USDA does not agree with you. Well, we've got to continue to put pressure on the USDA to, to do it right. Um, and uh, like I said years ago when I was on that certification board, uh, the standards are the basis for uh, any organic certifier. And if, if you don't you don't have good solid standards, eventually you lose public trust, which may be what the end goal here is anyway. And if you lose public trust, you lose your markets, you lose your markets, it's over. 
the, the consumer is a powerful voice in Washington, D.C., and the consumer has said time and time again and continues to say, we want real organic food, okay? That's what they want. Uh, and so that's what we ought to give them because the customer's always right. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, I, I quote Bill McKibben. He's talking about the climate fight. He said, I, in the beginning, I, I thought we were having a debate and after a while, I realized we'd won the debate years ago, and now we were just having a fight, yeah. a fight with money and power. Yeah. And, and uh, I think the same thing is true here in the food, in the food system, yeah. that there are some very powerful interests, and they're, they're happy to step yeah. into the organic market. They're happy Absolutely. if that doesn't work because yeah. they got the other market too. Yeah. And look, I mean, I, I, I think that the organic market is big enough for everybody. Truthfully, it is, but you've you got to follow the rules. You've got to follow the rules, and you've got to make sure the people who are making the rules are making rules that are true to the business. Organics is, a, for me anyway, it's uh, you've got you to gotta believe in it if you're a producer. I think you have to believe in it if you're a consumer too, but if you don't believe in it, I don't see how you can do it. Okay. And I don't think organics is for everybody, by the way. I, I think there are producers out there, and I do not criticize them, that are not organic because you know, the system just doesn't work for them. And that's okay. But, but for those folks that are in the business, uh, making sure that make sure you have good standards that are enforceable standards um, is really important. So I agree with all that. Do you have any thoughts about how we ensure that happens i we tried for years to reform the, the national organic program and uh, honestly it didn't work well it didn't work well under a democratic administration for eight years it didn't work well under republican for four years so what do you do you 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 know that it's not about party politics there are democrats who support the chicken cafos because they got a huge chicken cafo in their state i yeah, yeah. i understand how it works I so it. what do we do well i think education is still the key i mean i, I really do i think uh, look the chicken cafo thing i'm very familiar with that because i remember it pretty vividly people that i thought should be on my side weren't uh but the truth is is that you we've got to uh, continue to educate uh, continue to be forceful without threatening, um, and 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 I would just tell you that I think that uh, I, I, this is the best government in the world. Sometimes we're frustrated with it, but there's still nothing better. And I think being able to come in and visit uh, and talk to people is important. And, and I would also say this, and talking to them while they're running for election is important too, and, and getting them nailed down and holding them accountable to what they're telling you. I mean, it's really easy when you're running for office. I come talk to, to an organic producer and say, oh, yeah, 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 that's fine. And pay attention to what they do when they get in office because sometimes honesty isn't the best quality back here. <laughs> and, uh, and quite, honest, uh, quite honestly, uh, uh, there's... Plenty of people. I can tell you it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's student loans or whether it's open lands or whether it's organic agriculture. They'll tell you one thing. They get your vote, and then they forget what they told you. And so you got to hold people accountable, too. And uh, you can do that in a number of ways. You can do it directly and say, you know, why Why did you vote like this on this bill? Why? I mean, you know, if it's a bill to... Um, or a nominee that's a good, solid nominee, a Miles McAvoy kind of a person in, in the agency. Why, why did you speak illy or whatever? I mean, that's that information is hard to get, but you can get it. 
And I think it's part about holding folks accountable. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the problem seems to be actually, I mean, I mean, Congress passed a good law, yeah. the Organic Food Production yeah. Act. We yeah. have a good law, and we have yeah. good, good standards. Sponsored by, by a man from Vermont, I might. That's think. right. So Senator Leahy has been doing the deed. He's been working hard at yeah, it. He's a good it's man. a good law. Yeah. And but it's not being well enforced. Yeah. And uh, and you know, my goodness, in ten years, yeah. in ten years from 2010 to 2020, there were 20 recommendations passed by the National Organic Standards Board. Yep. Yeah to go to the National Organic Program for rulemaking, yep. not one of them was acted on, including prohibiting hydroponics, including the animal welfare that would have limited those. So the, the problem seems to be not so much with Congress, but with the agency. The agency. Uh, uh, we've had, well, I, we've I, had I, senators yeah. write letters yeah, I know. calling for action. and Well, I think you gotta do more than that, um, to be honest with you. Um, and and just this conversation, I I got to start doing more. I mean, we look we look at so many things. I mean, you know, I'm de dealing with China, what China's doing. I'm <clears throat> dealing with what's going on in higher education. I mean, there, I, I'm I'm making excuses, but it's the truth. You, you get you get wound up in other areas, and I never want to be seen as somebody that's uh, doing things to help myself. So I've kind of set back on a lot of the organic stuff. I've given my input and I've told people what they should do, but but I haven't been the one that's been the lead story in the paper. At least I haven't meant to be if I have been. Um, so I think what, what, what we need to do um, is what you guys have already done partially. I, I know there was a number of folks who signed a letter to Vilsack saying that we've got these challenges, uh, CAFOs, grain imports, whatever it might be. Um, can can you guys do something about it? I, I think that um, you need to follow up, get a point of contact. We can get you a point of contact, by the way, over there uh, in the organic program. And I would continue. Here here's the challenge. The challenge is is that you got to find the sweet spot where uh, you're giving input without being a pain in the butt. You know what I mean? And sometimes you got to be a pain in the butt. But if you're seen as a pain in the butt all the time then you lose your credibility. So you've got to figure out that sweet, sweet spot where you're giving input and you're, uh, uh, you're, you're making headway, okay? And, and, and it, it may be wise not to deal with, you know, 20 issues, but deal with one. Yeah. Try to get that one fixed yeah. and then go to the next one. Yeah. Well, my hope with a Real Organic Project is that we'll be successful enough that the National Organic Program will go, we gotta, we gotta clean our stuff up here. So the, you know, the the NOSB and 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 all those are, are they're supposed to have people on them that are organic folks that know the industry. It doesn't do any good to have the head of uh, Dow Chem on 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 the NOSB, and the guy from Dow Chem will tell you that it's not the right position for him to be. So let's make sure the people we're putting on there, we're holding them accountable too. And and if they're have, they're being frustrated by the lack of action in the bureaucracy, they need to say it. They need to talk about that. Because well, that that's, was that that's, letter. That's our inroad into, yeah. uh, in, in, into, the, into the business to make sure we have strong standards. Yeah, that, that letter was signed by 43 former NOSB members, right. which is the majority of living members. Right. And I, I was amazed at the response. I, I mean, there were probably three people we asked who didn't sign it and everybody else signed it because they all saw yep. we got a real problem. Yeah, we got a problem right here in River City, 
you yeah. know? And uh, as you say, if we don't do something, we're going to lose this thing that's precious that we worked all worked hard on for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think back to when I first got into this and, uh, you know, people like Russ Salisbury who passed away a couple of years ago. Good, honest dude, man, and, and worked, worked hard uh, when organics were nothing to try to make it into something. Dave Oyen, who's still in the business and he's still got a number of good years left in him uh, that, that worked really, really hard when there was no premium. He was doing it just for the right reasons. And and those guys, are the, and by the way, there's thousands of those. There's, you know, Bob Quinn, he got in a little later than those guys, but still somebody who's, who's made a big difference in Montana for sure. And, and we just, we need to continue to keep what those folks had in mind for organics about the way they uh, wanted to do their operations and how they wanted consumers to be treated. And it's just, it's really important. I talked to a dairy farmer in New York the other day, and he had had a 13-year transition where he was organic and certified organic, but he, he wasn't selling into an organic market. There wasn't one. He just right. sold it conventional. He just yeah. wanted to farm that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, those, those are the folks that, you know, call them true believers. It's a way of life for them. That's and right. That's, that's the way they see it. So let me, let me jump over for a minute. There's a, there's a new initiative in the EU that just got passed by Parliament, the European Parliament, called Farm to Fork. And it's an attempt to really transform their agriculture. And they've got targets by 2030. I, I, they they want to have 50% pesticide reduction by 2030. And they also want to have or, organic, certified organic, be 25% of European agriculture. These are ambitious and bold goals. And to my dismay, the USDA has responded with complete uh, hostility to this, saying, no, we are going to propose a different path. And I, I understand business. There's a lot of, lot of money involved because we're not just talking about the EU and America. We're talking about the world here. Yeah, that's right. and, and which vision that's right. is going to be the vision. And, and they're, they're looking at the impacts of climate, you know, and how do we how do we have an agriculture that actually helps instead yeah, of hurts? That's right. So, what do you think about that? Uh, it, it, to me, it was inspiring yeah. that a government yeah. would take this position. Well, I think you, I think you got to have goals, and I think that goals are good. I think achieving those goals become more difficult. And I'm going to tell you what I think the key is to achieving goals in agriculture, uh, whether it's the initiative you're talking about. Or initiatives to, make, initiatives to make production agriculture more profitable um, by potentially reducing input costs and, and you know and, and, and more competition in the marketplace. It all starts with our land grant universities. It absolutely starts with our land grants. You know, I think it was back in the 70s uh, we had a egg secretary. I believe it was in the 70s that said, "Get bigger, get out." Um, I've never bought into that philosophy. And we've had land-grant universities, quite frankly, around the country. Uh, Montana's no different than anywhere else that have done some great research. But in my opinion, it really hasn't benefited the folks to the extent it should have anyway in production agriculture. I mean, we're, we're increasing yields and protein in grains by putting more fertilizer on. Fertilizer costs money, and it becomes a net negative in my opinion. And 
And what we should be working on is crops we can raise with less fertilizer, less input costs, still producing a viable product that people can exist on and, and moving forward. And I think if, if we were able to get that done, but look, there's been a couple problems with that, by the way, but if we we're able to get that done, I think you would see agriculture change and change pretty fast. The problem has been though, is we here at the federal level have dried up the research dollars. We don't give as much as we used to. And consequently, that's what they do. And so they're out there looking at any place they can get those dollars. And anytime it comes from the private sector, money always has strings. I don't care if they say it doesn't or not, I don't buy it. And so consequently, you get the research you pay for. And you get the benefits from that research. And I know there are probably researchers who are going to watch this and just say that's not correct, unbelievably not going to happen. But let's look at the finished product. I've seen input costs go through the roof in the 40 years we've been on the farm. And, and quite, quite frankly, um, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And so if we get good research that, that really does look at how we can reduce our input costs, I think we'll see what Europe is trying to get. It will happen, and it will happen automatically because the economics of us will push us that way. And input costs, thank you, input costs are fertilizer, yeah. pesticides. Yeah. Just for people, they go, what's an input cost? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. the money that everyone's yeah. spending on a chemical yeah. agriculture system. Yeah, I had a friend of mine that converted his farm from conventional to, to organics. He, he bought it and he converted it. And, and the story he told, if I can remember this correctly, is the guy he bought it from came over and said, you're only raising 30 bushel crops when I was raising 45 bushel crops. And the guy looked at him and said, um, well, I'm making X number of thousand dollars a year. How much did you make? He said, uh, well, we lost money. Bottom line is take a look at the bottom line. And, and I think if people, uh, it's, it's kind of like what happened in the pandemic, okay, where people were forced to stay home, take care of the kids, and they turn around and go, I don't have that childcare payment to make anymore. I'm making more money staying home than I was working. Okay, and, and, and it's the same thing in agriculture. If, if you give the farmer the tools to be able to reduce their costs and, and make a few extra bucks, they're going to do it. And, and it all starts with the land-grant universities. All right. John Tester, I, I know you have a meeting that I'm holding you up. So thank you very much for talking with me today. It's, I appreciate it. it. It's, it's always a pleasure. To, and, th and by the way, thank you for what you do, man. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, one of these days I'm going to lose some weight, but in the meantime, I like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I like to eat too. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to our conversation, is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 54. Please join us next time when our guest is Leah Penniman, founder of Soul Fire Farm, a community farm and activist training center. She's the author of Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farm's practical guide to liberation on the land. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms. See you next time.